The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I'm so thrilled you're joining us. Man, we're going to talk about work, success, and what's changing, because there's so much changing. My guest is Heather McGowan, and I'm so glad you joined us. So today's episode is brought to you by Subsplash. Do you know growing churches focus on discipleship in the digital world, and your church can be one of them? Join 16,000 other churches partnering with Subsplash to make disciples in a hybrid reality at subsplash.com slash carry. And then visit 10by10.org, that's T-E-N-X-1-0.org, to access free resources leaders can use to connect young people to a faith community. We're so glad to partner with 10 by 10 and with Subsplash today. And well, we're going to talk about why what made you successful as a leader today won't make you successful in the future, the four shifts that need to happen at work, and what the next generation sees as non-negotiable at any workplace, subjects very close to my heart. And one of the delights of doing this show is I get to introduce you to familiar voices and also probably people you've never heard of. I know in my growth as a leader, uh, I love learning from people that I'm like, huh, didn't even know they wrote a book, didn't even know that they, they were leaders in their own space. And so I try to bring you the best from a variety of spaces. And Heather McGowan is a future of work strategist. And so she's a thought leader, a researcher, and an author. And she's one of the leading voices on the future of work. And I'm delighted to have her on the podcast today. So, hey, I know that a lot of you are new to the podcast. Welcome. We're really glad you're here. One of the best things you could do is you could subscribe. And that way you'll never miss an episode. I only listen to the podcast I subscribe to as a rule. And if you really enjoy this or a previous episode, please share it with a friend. When you get the word out, we get to do this week after week and I get to bring you some of the best guests we possibly can. Hey, you know we're living in a complex time, right? Well, over the last few years, many churches and certainly pastors have experienced huge huge disruptions to whatever they considered business as usual. But did you know that many churches are actually growing right now? And what today's thriving churches have in common is they focus on discipleship and they embrace a hybrid digital reality. So growing churches are living out the Great Commission and they seize the opportunity of technology to help them do it. And that's where Subsplash comes in. For 18 years, they've been building the leading digital platform for churches with mobile apps, messaging, websites, streaming, groups, giving, and more. Subsplash puts the best of today's technology into the hands of church leaders for the sake of discipleship. So if you want your church to thrive, join 16,000 other churches partnering with Subsplash right now to make disciples in a hybrid reality. You can get started today at subsplash.com slash carry. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H, subsplash.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And 10 by 10 has officially launched to reach 10 million young people over the next 10 years with free strategically created curated resources, research back, may I add, the 10 by 10 collaboration aims to reconnect young people to a faith community and support the leaders that serve them. Could you imagine your church a decade from now thriving with the next generation? Well, 10 by 10 is a nationwide collaborative initiative that partners with leaders like you to prioritize the discipleship of the next generation. So visit 10by10.org, that's T-E-N-X, 10.org, 10by10.org, to access these free resources and learn more about how to champion the faith of the next generation. And remember, it's all free. 
Okay, with all that said, let's dive into a conversation about the present reality and the future of work. And as a leader, I'm taking notes. Hey, you know what? I realized a long time ago, what got me here will not get me there. And Heather McGowan is going to help us understand even more in that. Here's the conversation. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi there. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So we're going to dive into work today. And I would love for you, like the, you said something just before we hit record, the picture behind you, which I commented on, I said, oh, that's a really cool picture. Like that's sort of my style of art. What's the story behind the picture? So that was done by artificial intelligence. I have done some experiments. My, I'm at my house here in Provincetown and it's filled with original art, some by people I know, some by uh -huh. people... I wish to know. I aspire. I, uh, I love their artwork. Um, but I was playing around. I had heard that you could use um, a version of ChatGDP, same platform, OpenAI, yeah. to create images. And it and it puts the human in the position of being sort of a prompt and a curator. So you put in words, like for, for this one in particular behind me, I put in cottages on a beach, and I think I use some sort of language around the style. And then it outputs, I think, four at a time in little boxes, and then you can do variations on those boxes, and then you can expand it, and then you can crop it differently. And then this one in particular, I did an acoustic treatment I did on top of it and had it printed and framed. So it's a little bit of a collaboration, but it's mostly AI. It's really cool. When you first told me it was AI, because I'm like, oh, I really like your painting. I thought you meant it was like a virtual background. And then you're like, no, that's a real wall and that's a real painting, but yeah. AI generated it. So, And I'm a real person. And, so and you're a real person. And yeah, exactly. This is a real conversation, not my avatar. Um, but yeah. I do want us to kick off by painting a picture of what work could be like slash would be like in the next five to 10 years. Because I think a lot of listeners, they're still like, I was in a meeting today at our church, which I helped found. And, you know, it was an in-person. They're like, can we do this on Zoom? And I'm like, actually, I like brainstorming better in person. But then I lead a remote team, the little team that does all this. We're all remote. I got people in uh, New Jersey, someone in Massachusetts, Toronto, and then up here, right? So, I mean, we run a virtual company. We get together three or four times a year. A lot of people, their head is still spinning over a hybrid workplace, but it's going to get a lot weirder, isn't it? Yeah. And one of the things I say to folks is, is we're all sort of a little hyper-focused on two questions, where work's going to take place and what technology is going to do that we're not going to do anymore. And I actually think that's really two of five big questions. So first and foremost, who works? The workplace was largely designed for a straight white man who had a wife at home to manage all the caregiving responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And not only a straight man, but a neuro-non-divergent um, uh, which is actually probably a smaller percentage of the population than the broader percentage of the population. So hmm. what is our workforce? What could our workforce be? It's uh, female, it's a variety of races, it's a variety of gender expressions, it's a variety of sexualities, but it's also a variety of um, neurodiversity. It's also a variety of learned and lived experiences. So like you came to doing this work from coming from a church. Other people may come to work from experiences in the military. Other people may come to work from experiences being um, in illegal activities and being incarcerated because you actually mm -hmm. learn something from all of those things. So whereas we think about like kind of one profile of the worker and when we even talk about diversity, we kind of talk about the stuff we can see and there's so much more diversity in the stuff we can't see. So that's one thing. The second thing is what we do. Now we know technology is going to consume some tasks. It already has, um, and we've adapted, and we've adapted like, you know, if I took your phone and I wiped out your contact list and I handed it back to you, 
you couldn't call anybody because you've already outsourced that part, right? And we're going to continue to do that kind of things where we'll sort of realize we've handed things off and we don't do them anymore. It's okay. And then, you know, how we work, we train people to do routine and predictable tasks largely in isolation. Most of the work we're going to have to do is in collaboration. So we're going to move from individual intelligence to collective intelligence. And then um, where we work, I think that experiments are going to begin now. Work may not be a place for everybody. It may be an activity. Um, I think we'll figure that out. We've had a thousand plus days of a forced social experiment. We learned some stuff. We learned a lot of good stuff, and hopefully we'll carry that forward. And then I think most importantly, and probably most importantly for your audience, is why do we work to begin with? Mm-hmm. We once worked for survival. Then we worked for too long for just identity and status. And increasingly, people want to work for purpose. They want to have a sense of self-expression. They want to have an alignment with their values. They want to feel like they're having an impact in the world. And the existential crisis of the pandemic really brought that into focus, where a lot of folks were like, I'm not doing this anymore. This has Mm. been sucking my soul for too long. I want to feel a real expression of who I am in what I do for work. Well, it's interesting. You know, I want to drill down on the why we work uh, a little bit before we dive into it, because that's a question I've been asking myself a lot, too. What are your thoughts and what are the different schools of thought on why people work? Well, I mean, obviously, most of us have to work because we couldn't otherwise provide for ourselves and our family. So there's that, of course. I was going to say, there is survival beyond purpose. Survival is uh is still there, but I think we found enough ways to do it that we can cover off survival for many or most of us, or we certainly generate enough for all of us. Um, But then it becomes, um, I think humans need activities. Mm. I don't think we're meant to be idle. I mean, we're really the only species that would create things that would replace us. You know, other species don't do that. (laughs) You know, we we need to tinker. We need to do things. We need to Mm -hmm. express ourselves. And so I think that need for activity and self-expression and feelings of productivity and feelings of engagement and feelings of connection are why we work. And what I think we need to do is figure out how do you optimize the human performance around those activities as opposed to grinding someone into dust? Yeah, I was watching the Netflix documentary on the Blue Zones where people live to be 100. There's five or six places in the world. And one of the recurrent themes was you do better. There are a variety of forces when you have a purpose every day and you contribute. And that contribution could be, you know, I tend the goats or the sheep in a more rural uh, culture, or it could be I care after my aging aunt or, um, you know, I'm needed to make lunch every day or something. But I mean, it doesn't have to be grandiose. And look at me, I'm changing the world. But but that whole idea of I'm making a contribution, my life somehow matters, I think is really important as well. So let's talk about remote work because that will be a top of mind issue for a lot of people. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated the remote work trend. What do you see, you know, when it comes to where we work, the way you phrase that? Where do you see that going in the next few years? Well, I think before we get into sort of like exactly where we're going to work, I think what people need to kind of zoom out, I I tend to zoom a little far up, but zoom out and say, okay, what really happened and why why did we change? So what happened, I think, was Mm. prior to the pandemic, we had, and I I use visual, so I'm going to draw with my hands here. We had a big circle, and that was our professional life. And our professional life was our identity. It's what we thought about when we were little kids, and we we were asked what we wanted to be when we grew up. When other adults ask us what we do, it's a big focus of our life was that professional life. It was fodder for our CV, our resume, our LinkedIn profile, our just external identity, right? And 
we didn't really have any agency over it. It was just the thing that was so important about how we defined ourselves. And then we had a smaller circle, which was our personal life for most of us. And it was fodder for our eulogy, but we didn't really think about that until mm. we had the existential crisis of the pandemic where we felt the fragility of life and the finiteness of time. And what happened during the pandemic is those two circles overlapped. And for a lot of folks, the professional circles shrank a little bit and the personal circle grew a little bit. And we had agency over both. And we also had autonomy and we were accountable. And we had higher levels of productivity and we had higher levels of engagement and we had higher levels of trust and leadership than we do at this particular moment. Why? Because we felt not work-life balance, but life-work integration. And people hopped around from jobs, and they're still doing it, to find a place where they fit, where they belong, where they feel self-expression. So we talk about where work's going to take place. I don't know where it's going to take place. We will continue to do things like this. We will continue to use Zoom and better products in the future. Yeah. Um, for some folks, it is going in every to a place every day. For other folks, it's never going into a place every day because they get too distracted. So I think the where thing is less of an issue to then to how do I feel like I have agency and autonomy and control over the, all 24 hours of the day? What is your take on, and there's some major companies who are like everybody back in the office from banks, but also tech companies. I mean, Apple called people back to the office, I believe. Uh, more recently, Zoom called people back to the office, which has an irony to it. Now, it's not five days a week, but two or three days a week. And I know in the church world, my sphere, a lot of people are kind of like everybody back in the office again. What What is behind, you know, both in the, the, the positive side and maybe the darker side of that return to the office. Seth Godin says some of that is surveillance capitalism. You know, I get to see you, therefore I know that you're productive. Um, what, what, what's your take on that? Um, I think some of it is real estate optimization, and it's the reality <laughs> that X costs me to do something. Like that. that is some of it for some folks. Yeah, it is. Um, it's I like think, we're paying all this yeah. rent. We better justify it, right? Yeah. I think there is uh, the reality that most of the leaders we have in place today became successful in a different arena. And we haven't trained them to be successful in this arena. And that's not fair to them. And I think it's a sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Um, for some folks, it works out great because that's what they want. And it's the right for their company. It's right for their culture. For other folks, it's not going to work because what you're doing is you're not listening to your people right now. So I'm going to be watching this because this call back to the office, I think, is like callback number 12 or something like that over the last like 18 months. So it's a callback and a walkback, a callback and a walkback. So we'll, we'll see if it actually becomes the new normal or if it becomes another, hey, we didn't really mean that. Um, <laughs> I think what we really need to do, I mean, really the, the question you're asking and the answer I really want to give is that I think we need to teach people to be successful, whether you're breathing on your people or not. How do you mm. successfully manage teams when they're remote? Oh, when do you come together? Why do you come together? Because I remember the, the early days of the three days in, two days out, or two days in, three days out, whatever it was, people would show up on their day that they picked, and they would sit in their office and Zoom people were home that day. And it served absolutely no purpose, and it just irritated everybody. So we have to curate reasons we come together. There are some things we do better in person. I'm a speaker. In 2021, 90% of my events were virtual. In 2022, 90% were in person. So mm -hmm. I have different experiences being in person with folks. There are certain things I can do virtually that are actually better than 
than live. And then there are other things that are better live. So it's, I think we have to sort of take all our biases off the table, realize when people need help, kind of focus on what problem we're actually trying to solve. And is there a better way of solving it? I'm glad you touched on trying to, I mean, you had some really good points there. You know, the arena you became successful in is the one you're going to want to recreate. Note that, underline it. And that is a recipe for becoming irrelevant and ineffective long-term if you're not willing to change. But you also said, and I think it's very fair and an empathetic reading, a lot of us were never trained on how to manage people remotely. Now, I've been leading remote teams since the 90s, just for a variety of reasons we won't go into. Um, It's a learnable skill. What are some of your pro tips for leading a hybrid workforce or remote team or a two days in, three days out type workplace where you're not watching every moment? Well, you kind of shouldn't be watching every moment, actually. Let's be I know, honest. I know, but bosses feel that way. People, people have said that. Them. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, uh, yeah right. exactly, cool. exactly. Well, the question is becomes sort of like, what is it that you need to see? Um, I am very against any of the surveillance software. I think that if you're surveilling somebody, you don't trust them and you shouldn't hire them. Full stop. True. Agreed. And it's it's a violation of human rights, I think, honestly. But what I think um, you need to do when you're managing a remote team is sort of figure out how do I check in with people? When do I check in with people? And once you've created a, a um, diversity on where work takes place, you have a diversity on when work takes place. Hmm. So you give people the option to optimize to their time zone. So there are some people who are firing on all cylinders at 6 a.m. There are some people who cannot get anything going before 11 a.m., so it doesn't matter what time zone they live in, they sort of have a natural rhythm to another time zone. So figure out what people, and then there are people who have to pick their kids up at school or check in with elderly parents or whatever it may be. So the cycle becomes different. And when is the best time to catch someone and talk to them? Because if you're talking to them about where are you with this and where with you that and where with you that, you're actually creating a task-based relationship where they don't really want to talk to you. But if you have a relationship-based relationship where you say, how are you doing? What's on your mind? How can I help you be more successful? What are you working on? How can I help you focus? How can I help you remove obstacles? Where do you need resources if I have them? Do you want to talk something through with me? So you become more of a coach that mm-hmm. helps mm-hmm. your people become successful rather than a taskmaster that everybody wants to avoid. Yeah, I, I think that's really good advice, and it does work. I mean, I have a staff who are doing everything from running errands to picking up their kids or arranging daycare and that kind of thing, but they show up. They show up day after day. They're responsible people. Do you think that they're, and you know, I have a very small team, so I'm not trying to exaggerate here, but do you think there are certain personality types that don't thrive in that environment? like where you have that kind of autonomy and freedom, maybe don't steward it well. What are some tips for bosses or leaders who find themselves going, yeah, I wish it all worked that way. I'm, I'm not sure whether I got exactly that mix on the entire team. Any thoughts there? Absolutely. There are some people, some know it, some don't, who, who basically cannot get things done without the structure and the deadlines. And so for those folks, you have to say to them, all right, I know this is something you struggle with, so let's set some things in a place that we agree upon. Like, you're going to check in with me at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. or whatever. Tell me how you're doing. Tell me what you need. 
we're going to have interim deliverables so we make sure that you stay on schedule because that's something you struggle with. Lots of people struggle with different things. So for the folks who do that, yes, you, you, you might they may need more structure. Some are better without structure. Some need more structure. But you have to kind of come to an agreement on how to manage that because you can't have agency and autonomy if you're not accountable. And if you cannot be accountable without structure, you need to agree to the structure that makes you accountable and successful. So you've already hinted at it, the great resignation, but you argue that there were four other revolutions or movements that reshaped work since 2020. Can you walk us through each of those? Yeah, and by the way, I think they're all going on. I think the next great resignation is probably more in the C-suite because a lot of our leaders Uh, are just exhausted. They've brought us through COVID. They've been dancing through whatever economic uncertainty where the recession that's coming, it's not coming. Soft landing, soft landing, hard landing, hard landing. You know, oh, wow, we still still have record levels of unemployment. So (laughs) those folks are exhausted. So that may be where we see it next. Um, But so to start off, so great resignation, everybody thinks of it as something that started in 2021. Actually, uh, churn rates have been going up since 2009 since Mm. our last recession. So it's been rising steadily and it was greater in 2022 than it was in 2021. And it's predicted it may be higher in 2023, but we'll see. And folks are hopping around. Sometimes they're doing it for short-term more money. A lot of folks are doing it for better fit. And I think that's Mm. good. And you can try out a few things to get there. So great resignation started more than a decade ago, almost two. Um, the great uh, reshuffle is for people who left one industry, went to another industry. So they, they quit, but they quit with an intention to change. So it was a reshuffling, a reskilling. Um, more than half the people who quit in 2021 and 2022 went from one industry or function to another. That's mm. caused us some challenges because with a finite and short labor force, it gives us big gaps in certain areas. It's making it harder. The great reshuffling is about 19 or 20 million people looking to change jobs to fit their lifestyle first and then their job second. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the um, great, sort of the great re- refusal was folks saying, I'm not going to work for $7.50 an hour anymore. If minimum wage had kept place with pre-pandemic inflation or um, Productivity, we'd be talking about $23, $24 an hour right now as a minimum wage. So we're way behind if we're fighting for 15 And then collectively, this gives you um, the empowered workforce, the great reset of how mm. it's kind of a collective strike across in, in some ways. But it's also a, I want to fit in the right place, in the right job, with the right skills, in the right region. And we had the great retirement in there as well, which is really something we should have seen coming. We knew there were many more boomers than there were Gen X, Millennium, but certainly Gen Z. And so we're having, you know, many more job openings than we have people to fill them. It's about 1.5 at the moment. And we've got 75 million baby boomers exiting the workforce between now and 2030. That shouldn't have been a surprise, but for some reason it was. And that gives us the empowered workforce. And it's not about where we work. It's where work fits in our lives. It sounds like the balance of power, if you want to call it that, is shifting or has shifted from the employer to the employee. Is that a fair read in all of those or not really? Yes, I think so. And I think that that was something that was sort of declared in 2021 and 2022. And every day with the sort of, well, here's the, you know, the recession coming was this sort of, and the power is going to shift back and the power is going to shift back and the power is going to shift back. 
when you have um, a labor shortage, which you do in in the U.S. and in most uh, developed countries because of our aging population and our lower fertility rates, um, the power is not going to shift back unless technology really does consume half of all of our work, which I I don't think it's going to happen that quickly. Hasn't so, you so have far. That, yeah. It hasn't so far. And then the other thing you have is you have Generation Z coming online, about 13, 14% of the workforce now, 30% by 2030. And these are folks that were born in 9-11, had school shootings in grade school, never knew a time without war, um, had the global financial crisis when they were in grade school, had Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, finished their education in the pandemic. They have had body blow after body blow in every stage of development in their life. And now they get up to, to work. They're our first digital natives, but they're also saying, eh, you know, that's not really worth it. I would rather, you know, work with a sense of purpose or not at all. And many of them are slower to adult, which I think is okay because I think they're going to be glacial. They're going to move slowly and cut a wide path. And they are mm. going to turn change work. So some of these changes that kind of came about in the pandemic, I think they're going to make them permanent, make work better for all of us. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of change. But if you really think about it, like even the baby boomers exiting alone, uh, succession, as you hinted at with the Great Resignation, has come up more and more on this podcast as people in their 50s, 60s, and beyond are just like, yep, this is my season, I'm going. And demographically, that's going to create a huge swath. What industries in the broader market are going to be hit hardest by the talent deficit by boomers and soon older Gen Xers just tapping out? I know the federal government is certainly one of them because, you know, federal government used to be something you did if you were patriotic. Yes. And now it's something that nobody goes into the federal government. So we have, we're going to have a huge uh, loss of, of knowledge, uh, tacit knowledge there. Um, mm. The sort of shuffling stuff we saw in the pandemic was a lot of folks leaving close contact industries. So for every uh, 10 nursing openings, we've got one person training to be a nurse. Um, pilots, for some reason, for every six pilot openings, we have one person training to be a pilot. Uh, every three engineers, we have one training to be an engineer. These are not things you can watch YouTube videos and figure out how to do on your own. So we need a we need a Marshall plan. And they're good so, paying jobs. Uh, everything you mentioned is an excellent paying job. Yes, in the trades as well. I mean, uh, plumbing, electricity. We're not. We've we've gotten rid of all our vocational schools and systems. So, and we have sort of shamed people into thinking that everyone has to go to university. Hmm. But you're gonna have a great living as uh, as a contractor owning a contracting company. You'll make a lot more as a plumber than you will as someone with a three year degree in psychology graduating yes. well, with student debt, right? Like, yes, depending on what wow. you do with it. Mm -hmm. Depending on what you do with it. Very good point. Yes, Very because good I point. continue to be a champion for the liberal arts and anthropology and, and some of those things that you can, because I think most of what we're going to be doing with work for work is helping each other adapt to change. So I think those psychology degrees, the liberal arts degrees, the anthropology degrees, the ethnography degrees are going to be really actually very helpful, but you have to figure out how to apply it to the situation we're in. Maybe my history degree will come in handy at some point in the future. I, I don't bet know. It has. I bet it has. <laughs> you know what? It does. It shows up all the time. That's I mean, this amazing. is kind of, I went to art school. No one expected oh, yeah? me to be this. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's it is good general training. I mean, that was a whole theory under the liberal arts is it prepares you for life, right? You learn yeah. a little bit of literature, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of history, a little bit of this. And so yeah, yeah I don't regret it. It was going somewhere, um, but law didn't 
didn't uh, end up being my life. Something else did. Anything else about millennials and Gen Z who are now really dominating the workforce? I mean, with boomers exiting, Gen X, my gen being the smaller generation, they're going to be, if they aren't already, the majority of the workforce within a few years. What else are you seeing among millennials and Gen Z? I think it would be a mistake if you're dismissing them, if you're writing them off. Um, They operate differently because they've had different life experiences. They need our mentoring and our help. They are going to make the changes we kicked down the road and avoided. So it's shame on us if we don't look at their potential. Gen Z in particular is the most uh, diverse and well-educated generation we've ever had. And we're putting a lot in their hands. So let's do everything we can to help them be successful. What are the unhelpful or inaccurate stereotypes about Gen Z that you keep hearing? Um, That they're fragile. Now, they do have higher rates of anxiety and depression than any other generation, but I just rattled off all the things they've been through. So they've dealt with more than we've dealt with in terms of trauma in their upbringing. Um, That they don't want to work, I don't think that's true. I think they want to work with a sense of purpose. They don't want to work because they're told to work. They don't want to work because... Um, They're rejecting, some of them are rejecting sort of a consumer-obsessed society. They would rather do without than have the things they want in their lives. Hmm. Um, To some extent, they said some of these things about the millennials, but I actually find it to be even more true about Gen Z. So I'm very uh, bullish on them. I think they're going to be an incredible generation for us in terms of community, society, culture, belonging, reframing work. Um, I think they're going to knit together the, the the social fabric in the in the community that we frayed over, you know, our generations. Mm. I'm Gen X, which nobody knows what Gen X is. It's a generation <laughs> that badly needs a marketing department. We've we've been forgotten always. I, I get yes. I get DMs. I mean, technically, I'm Gen X. I'm on the leading edge of it, but I get DMs all the time from people who are like, "Hey, how come you just talk about millennials, boomers, and Gen Z? What happened to us?" It's like we've been forgotten. So, yeah, I, get I mean, it. that makes sense. We're the latchkey kids, you know, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. and the smallest generation, right? Um, w- w- you know, the other thing, and this is anecdotal, so please correct the trend. Anecdotes are just that, they're anecdotes. But I have a number of friends who are parenting teenagers right now, slash early college students. And these are the kids who want to wear a suit to school who want to go to the business school, who want the career. Is there sort of a revival in entrepreneurialism that's happening with Gen Z, or is that just a couple of anecdotes? Well, they're either doing it with a sense of irony, which they could be. (laughs) It could be, yeah. Um, And if they are entrepreneurial, it doesn't necessarily mean a a business suit, but each generation has gotten a little bit more entrepreneurial, and I think that's good. I think, you know, if you look in the U.S., about where our jobs come from, 90% plus percent of our jobs come from firms five years and younger. So it is the new wow. organizations that actually drive work because the big organizations hire a lot of people, but they shed a lot of people first. So they're always in a some state of becoming more efficient where the new firms actually create new jobs. So, yeah. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Okay, so on that note, if you were going to start a company today, and you can think, it could be a creative arts company, you have an arts background, it could be you're planting a church, it could be you're starting a restaurant or, um, you know, some kind of consumer business. What would you do culturally for your workplace and how would you position yourself to be well positioned for what's coming three to five years down the road? 
everything from like office space to budgeting to how you would create staff values. Like what are, what are some of the building blocks? And obviously that's a really big question, but like, what are two or three essentials that you'd be like, everybody pay attention to this? What's your advice there? Yeah, I think that whatever the entity does, I would look for people obviously smarter than me. That's where I think most of us go wrong. We look for people where we know more than they do. That's a huge mistake. Um, I think I would look for um, people who wanted to make an impact in the world around whatever the mission of the organization was. So that has to be first and foremost. I would want to pay them very well. I'd want them to make as much as I do, if not more because they will continue to be loyal to the organization and it will continue to grow. So I wouldn't look at skimping on pay. I think that's that's a mistake that we make. And then I would uh, say that we probably don't have an office space, for me anyway, because I travel all the time, so I'm comfortable moving around. And so I would pick places that we would meet, probably quarterly. Um, and for folks who needed it more frequently, we could arrange spaces that they could use to make it more frequently. But it would be much more about attracting that the talent, compensating them really well, and attracting them around an idea that they want to be a part of more than anything. Tell me more about compensation. One of the things I have really fought for is a living wage, which has not been the case in a lot of churches. You either get yeah. way overpaid or way underpaid, both of which are problems. Um, but let's talk about uh, a generous wage. We've had Aaron Meyer who wrote No F Rules Rules uh, about Netflix with Reed Hoffman on the podcast. We talked about how, you know, the rock star principle that one overperformer is better than, you know, 10 underperformers and you should just compensate them well. What, what do you, what's underneath that, that drive for generous compensation in your mind? Well, do you know the strong link, weak link theory of sports? Uh, go ahead. No, I don't. No. So a game like basketball is a strong link is a weak link, is a strong link uh, theory. So uh, if I could get a Michael Jordan or a Shaquille O'Neal or a Scottie Pippen or a you know you, you name the player on my team, it wouldn't matter that I can't even dribble the basketball because they would just score all the baskets and it would be great. But if you had me on the soccer field. If you improve your worst player on the soccer field, you're going to score three times as many goals than as if you prove, improved your best player 10%. Wow. I did not know that. So I think more of work is, is weak link. And so the whole star performance thing, it works in some environments. It works in yeah. some types of work. But I think most of work is really that collaboration where one weaker player is where you want to uh, perform better. And some people take that as an excuse to force rank people and cut the yeah. bottom 20% all the time. All that does is create a, an environment of fear where nobody gets anything done. So I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think it's hiring people in who are the right fit and then compensating them well, so that you get higher performance in the collective team rather than focusing on a single person at the expense of the rest of everybody else. Is that, is there, it sounds a little bit like no more B players. Is that sort of what you're driving at or something else? I don't know that, but that sound does oh. it just by the nature of what you're talking about, it sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, there is that, there is that theory. Because if, you know, there are studies that show if you hire the rock star sales executive from another company and they come over, 
they're not necessarily going to perform. It's sort of what you said earlier, right? Like, oh, they were successful over there, but there were so many things that factored into that person's success to replant them over here. It may not work out. And often, I don't think the track record is very good. I forget whose research that was. So the other theory is... Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I also know the whole warp thing, value of a replacement player. So, like, what's your value versus someone I could put in in your place? Which is looking oh. at statistics from one environment, putting them in another environment. And I don't think that actually works out either. Because you mm. can take, you know, the best player in the world. And they've proven this with, with even though basketball teams are a strong link sport, they've found that the people who play together longer can perform better, even if individually, the statistically, they're not as good as having one great player on another team. Right. And so the the no more B players is your weakest or most underperforming or bad hit to your culture player actually drags everybody down significantly. And if you replace that person with somebody who is much better, at least the average or higher, uh, that that actually really over delivers beyond what you think it would. Um, so, But I think the same helpful. notion is true because you can sometimes have people on a team well, you don't really know what they do, but they make everybody else better. Yeah. And you can remove them thinking, because you look at their individual performance and you don't realize what they contribute in the collective performance. Because we don't have a way mm-hmm. of um, tracking assists when it comes to work like we do in, in right. sports. Right, right. You're right, because they're batting 211, but they're amazing on defense in baseball and they're um, fantastic in the clubhouse and really boost morale. And you pull them off the team, sure, they might bat ninth, but you know, I know a little bit of baseball. That's about all the sports I know. So there's my analogy, the end of my knowledge. Um, You talk a lot about empathy. You think empathy is going to be a key in the future. And I find there's two poles at work. I want to test my theory out on you, Heather. So, you know, on the one hand, a lot of workplaces are not empathetic. You know, I come from a law background. A lot of law firms are just like, how was your weekend? Terrible. You know, my mother was hospitalized. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. By the way, you're doing court at 10 a.m., right? There's that environment where you just ignore what's going on in people's lives. And then I find with a lot of churches, they almost overemphasize what's going on in people's lives. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, because they're shepherdy type people, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing gets done. Like there's no performance. There's no deliverables. There's no goals. There's no KPIs. There's nothing. It's just like we're all sitting around here oozing and caring for each other. Um, You're talking about something different. What yeah, what do you mean by what, empathy? Yeah, I think what happens is people conflate sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And mm. so when somebody's mother passes away or mother goes in the hospital, we should have sympathy. We should have empathy. We should have compassion. Um, but I, I realized this because I was done a ton of interviews for the latest book, Empathy Advantage. And um, somebody said to me, well, yeah, yeah, I'm so tired of being empathetic. We've got through COVID. I had to feel bad for people. So you're just saying we have to keep feeling bad for people and expressing expecting less of them? I said, well, on the day they put their dog to sleep or if their parent's in the hospital, yes, you should have compassion for them. But what I mean by empathy is empathy to understand how to help people become self-propelled. Mm. So let me like back up for a second and explain. Yeah. I think there are really four shifts taking place that need to take place for leadership. First is a shift in mindset. So it used to be, I'm the boss, everybody works for me. I focus on managing people and processes. I'm the unquestioned expert. The reality is, most likely, you have a team of people who have skills and knowledge you don't have. 
So instead of being that unquestioned expert, which is, by the way, a liability now, you need to be a humble, curious learner, and you work for the team. Their success is your success. Mm. So that's first a shift in mindset of who the boss really is, who the manager or leader really is. Second is a shift in culture, because if you're managing a team of people who have skills and knowledge that you don't, most likely across the team, there's a lot of unique knowledge in those individuals that isn't redundant. So you can't pit people against each other in sort of a Hunger Games peers as competitor kind of thing, which is what we've done. Instead, you need to shift your culture to be one of peers of collaborators. The third is a shift in approach. We used to get things done by extrinsic pressure, punishments, threats, and rewards. But the the speed, scale, and scope that we need people to learn and adapt will not work that way. Mm -hmm. We have to use intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation means you actually have to know your people. You have to use empathy to understand them so you understand how to help them motivate themselves, how they help them become self-propelled. And then from a behavioral standpoint, we kind of myopically drove productivity with domination, fear, or even humiliation, when really what we need to do is create effectiveness through inspiration, caring, love, and belonging. And those things all require empathy, but it's empathy as a performance driver to achieve those things. It's not empathy slash sympathy and compassion where I feel bad and expect less and nothing ever gets done. Well, I think you've named a really big issue that a lot of leaders, I don't think too many people would disagree, even those people who might say, yeah, I used to try to do extrinsic controls and motivation or fear or reward, and those external motivations just don't work. I think people would say, yeah, we see the change. How do you begin to do that? Like, How do you begin to make those changes? Can you give us some keys to realizing those four shifts? Yeah. First and foremost, you have to understand that the way you did it is not going to work going forward. And you have Mm. to say, it sucks and I'm sorry. Those are the things you have to start mm. with. Because mm. I was I had a couple different events where it was all Gen X to Boomer, mostly male, mostly kind of had that mindset, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I'm the in-question expert, and I'm trying to run these meetings, and it's just not going well. And these kids today, you know, all this kind of stuff. I said, right, okay, okay. So you became successful in an office arena. You became successful with presenteeism. You became successful by kissing, you know, kissing your bosses, whatever. And <laughs> you said mostly yes, sir. There might have been a yes, ma'am on occasion, but mostly yes, sir. And you became successful because you were the first person in the office and the last person to leave. And you missed your kids' soccer games and you missed a wedding and you did this and you did that. You made all these sacrifices. Great. That's got what got you to where you are. This next generation is not going to do that. And you can try, but they're not going to do that. So if you want to be successful, you have to abandon the things that made you successful to this moment. So first and foremost, that. And it does suck, and I am sorry. But if you want to be successful with this next generation, this post-pandemic workforce, you have to understand that you're only going to be as successful as they are. And so to be as successful as they are, you have to get to know them. I had one, I was speaking at one biotech uh, company and the leader had heard me like three times because I would spoken like to the company like 14 times or something like that in the last 12 <laughs> months. And she said, I've heard you three times now and you've said the same thing and you've said it different ways and you've tried to explain it to me. And she's like, I finally get it. I When I was just managing process, 
my people were kind of depersonalized units of productivity. I didn't really have to get to know them. But what you're talking about is I have to get to know them and figure them out and use empathy to help figure out how to um, make them be more successful, make them want to be more successful. So it mm. is a shift in that you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about them, because if you don't think about them, you're not going to get to where you want to get to. Wow. Okay, that's really big. So again, you got a whole book on this called The Empathy Advantage. But if there's one or two things, Heather, that a leader who's used to command and control, maybe that Gen X boomer leader who like, I am the expert. And you know what? You're reading the mail of most pastors because who else gets up there and for 30 to 45 minutes every week puts a microphone on and everybody sits there and takes notes. I mean, that just trains you to be the expert, less curious and more confident. What do you, where do you even start if that's how you're wired? So the one of the things I make all my audience do is say the four scary words to me that we're taught not to say as leaders. I oh. do <laughs> not know. Uh-huh. I don't know. I do not know is the beginning of learning. So you are the expert with the microphone, but you're asking me questions. You're learning. We're learning together. We're discovering things together. So as a speaker, I don't know everything. I go into each environment. I learn something new. I reshape the next talk. I reshape the next thing I'm thinking. I've been wrong about things. Been really wrong about things. I might be wrong about remote work. Maybe we'll all go back into the office. It'll be 2019 all over again by the time we get to 2024. I don't know. It's to reserve the right to be wrong because that's the opportunity we have to to learn and grow. And so I think that's the the first step is get comfortable with. I like that, that phrase. Reserve the right to be wrong. I'm gonna hang on to that one. Yep. And there is a Jap. Now I don't know the word for it because I'm blanking on it, but I could find it. There, there's a Japanese uh, pottery that where, and it's a concept where you have a piece of broken pottery instead of seeing it as ruined. You glue it back together with gold or silver, and it makes a new, more beautiful piece. And I think of that in terms of leaders and how we should think about ourselves, because the moments that chip us and the moments that shatter us are the in the, how we rebuild from that are actually the moments where we have our greatest insights, our best set of knowledge, our greatest sets of understanding. I mean, Steve Jobs talked about how if he hadn't been fired from Apple the first time, Mm -hmm. Apple, as we know it today, never would have existed. Totally. Totally. Okay. So I didn't know what that was called. I'd heard about it. So I'm not pretending to be the expert here, but a quick Google, just so you don't get a thousand emails and I don't. Kintsugi? <laughs> Kintsugi? Is that it? Does that ring a bell? Yes. That kind of yeah, pottery? K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. My apologies for probably butchering that pronunciation. Kintsugi. Got it. But that's the, uh, I, I have the image of my mind of the beautiful yeah. piece of coffee with the gold in it. Yeah. That's how we should think, be thinking about ourselves. I mean, we always try to be mm. perfect imposters as opposed to being imperfect beta versions of ourselves, which is really all we are. We're prototypes. We're just putting ourselves in different experiences. Dan Gilbert said, you know, humans are a work in progress and mistakenly think they're finished. That's also something I think we need to keep in mind because mm. we're as transient now as anyone we've ever been. We're as right and wrong as we were yesterday and the day before, and we're all in pursuit of being the next best version of ourselves. Well, not that you would know this from a lot of Christians today, but it is the Christian scriptures, the New Testament. There's a verse that says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power is from God, not from us. You know, in other words, I'm pretty cracked, <laughs> like I'm pretty broken. 
but if you caught some good from me, then that might be the grace of God shining through. Very similar yep. principle. Beautiful. And Christian leaders, you should be good at that. I should be good at that. All right. So we're taking notes. Great. Any other thoughts on how to get better at this? Um, realize, you know, go into, I learned this from Rashad Tabakalala. He is um, a fellow speaker and an author, and he says he begins every meeting one of four ways. Um, what's on your mind, which allows people to just say whatever's on their mind, which be kind of be the thing on the screen that's not allowing them to see you or operate in the same space that you're in. Um, can you help me with something? We tend to assume that we're just there to lead and to help other people, but Undoubtedly, now that you've got people reporting you, great question. you don't, that immediately puts you in an authentic and vulnerable position. Um, can um, you help me with something? Can I help you with something? Can I help you focus? Is there something I know that you don't? Is there something I can give you a hand, hand on? And then can we set uh, the, the kind of groundwork that we can give each other feedback? So when we finish a meeting, maybe not every meeting, but periodically, can, can I say, can I give you some feedback? Can you give me some feedback? And then you're setting the conditions using empathy throughout that, but you're setting the conditions where you have trust. And Dove Seidman says trust is the only human performance-enhancing performance drug. Um, we get a little dose of a chemical when we're trusted. Um, we work harder for people who trust us. We want to be part of organizations where we feel trusted. So it sort of establishes that trust in psychological safety as well. Mm. Yeah, that's an important paradigm. And the way I'm, I'm hearing it from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this sounds like table stakes for the future mm -hmm. of work. It's not like, oh, yeah. this is a nice to have. This is a need to have. Yes, yes, because you know your technology is going to do a bunch of stuff, and you can hire people yeah. with technology skills. But as soon as those technology skills change, they have to learn new ones. But they're only as good as you can get them to operate with the rest of your people and towards your common vision. So I know your AI is not your expertise, but that is a beautiful piece of art hanging behind you. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation right now. I'm not sure anybody really knows Heather, but like how how disruptive from where you sit, and you, you speak about this all the time to workplaces, but how disruptive do you think AI will be and what will it do to the human equation of work? Um, I think it's just going to make us get better at the things that humans are naturally better at anyway than machines. So like 10 years ago was the first time I had heard about generative AI and it was well before chat GDP even existed, but Generative AI, which is the ability to tell a piece of technology to do something like that picture or to make a physical object, um, really becomes a collaboration between the human and the machine. Hmm. So the machine won't just produce something, the human has to tell it to. So the human has to make that prompt. So one of the fastest growing jobs right now is a prompt engineer. So how do you create the language that makes the technology do something? And then how do you collaborate with that technology? So it's problem finding, it's problem framing, it's trying to find out that thing, like should it be that picture of those cottages at that size? Well, that's what fit in this room and that's how I picked it up to pick up on my glasses today, you mm. know? And then how do you curate the things that the technology creates? How do you make meaning from it? How do you optimize it? And so the technology is gonna be good at some things, the human's gonna be good at others. So I think we've been forcing humans to be more machine-like as machines became slightly more human-like in their ability to create things. And now we need to go back to having humans be more human-like. Humans excel at connection, belonging, empathy, 
And then the technology can do the tasks that we tell it to, and we can make meaning out of those insights that it finds. What jobs do you think will be, as far as we can see right now, technology proof? Because, you know, coming from a law background, my wife practiced for a long time too. A lot of those entry-level lawyer positions are disappearing quickly with AI-drafted mm-hmm. wills and forms and I don't think litigation is being revolutionized by it right now. Accounting, a very similar thing. A lot of that's just math, right? You get smart spreadsheets and that'll that'll go away. So a lot of those entry-level jobs, data entry, et cetera, et cetera, even EAs, I mean, probably going to have a revolution there in the next few years. But what what kinds of positions do you think will be, at least in an interim period, more resilient and technology-proof? Human-to-human jobs. So I remember when Frey Osborne model came out in 2013, it's 10 years ago this year, and they said that 47% of jobs would be done by technology by 2033. Now, anybody who predicts that far out with that specificity, probably going to be wrong. Uh-huh. And that's something you uh-huh. should But I remember going through the report and thinking, okay, they did it by SEC code in terms of jobs, and then it ranked all the jobs. It looked at the tasks within the jobs. That's how they got to that number. And I looked at the job that had the least um, number of tasks that could be done by technology, and it was a recreational therapist. Is a recreational therapist is somebody who goes into like an assisted living facility and has activities for people. It's a very um, focused on like figuring out what the human can do, human wants to do, what's helping them become more engaged. So if you think about the recreational therapist and where is the recreational therapist and all the things that we do. So litigation, yeah, AI can spit out the the bullet points of the argument, but can't persuade the jury the way a human mm-hmm. can. Mm-hmm. What are the human connections, human communication, making meaning, you know, framing a challenge for a solution that humans would work? Because ultimately all this stuff should be in service to us. We seem, Somewhere along the way we lost that. I mean, yeah. these are tools... Yeah. That now can do things that, you know, some things we cannot do, and but it wasn't ever designed to enslave us. But for some reason, we have this fear that technology is going to enslave us. That was never uh, our intent. Yeah, I think that's good counsel. And I think, you know, as far as people who work at churches, the more that we are connecting human to human, trying to broker meaning in the midst of all this, because who knows what this means, probably the better we are and the more we lean into our calling, which is a a happy coincidence or a happy Mm -hmm. merger. Um, I'd love to ask you this question. I've asked Simon Sinek this question, asked Adam Grant this question, Susan Cain, I think many others. Um, But I don't know whether you have a church background at all and that's not really relevant. But if there was one piece of advice from what you understand of the church, where you see the church, if you could advise church leaders, it's like, you know, folks, if you would just pay attention to this, I think it would go better for you. I think we really, really learn when we get advice from leaders like you. So what would you say to the church leaders who are listening? I do have a little bit of a church background. So I did yeah. grow up with some church environments. So I'm at least familiar with with uh, with what you do. You know, I have heard it, it's, it's described this way, that spirituality is is the question and religion is the answers. And, I, and I've seen all the data that we're kind of going through this de-churching phase. And I don't know if that has to do with the divisions that can happen around religion, that it can exclude people. But I also have read that there's a rise in spirituality. And so mm-hmm. I think there are people who are interested in taking time out of their week 
and maybe going to a place or connecting to a place virtually or connecting with people. We are going through a loneliness epidemic. The Surgeon General has proved that. We have a huge swath of our population that is extremely lonely and wants to connect. Mm. We have questions about why we exist, why we're here. So the big forces are in your favor. We got folks who are lonely. We got folks with big questions. How do you become more of the environment that becomes the answer or at least the place where they ask more questions? That is such a helpful framing. Thank you. Thanks. So, Thank you. I, I, I say to folks, I don't have any answers. I'm just trying to get us to better questions. That's a that's a great question. And um, thank you. Anything else you want to share that we didn't touch on? No, this has been really Super helpful. Yeah, thank it's been you. really interesting for me as well. Um, so the book is called The Empathy Advantage. And where can people connect with you, Heather? So um, I'm on LinkedIn, and I mention LinkedIn particularly because I think LinkedIn people, people think of it as a place you look for a job. I've never done that. It's my learning community. So it's where mm-hmm. I post what I'm reading. People tag me and things they're reading. So you can find me on there. I'm wearing some pair of eyeglasses. I don't think it's these, but you'll just see my yeah. hair. And some you have pair more of than one, don't you? You have more than one. <laughs> I do. It's a little bit of an I won. addiction. Yeah. It's a little bit of addiction. Um, and then to find information about speaking and all that sort of stuff, it's heathermcgowan.com. And um, those are the two places I really am. I'm not a huge social media person, but I'm very active on LinkedIn because that's my learning community. Heather, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want more, and we covered a lot, you can go to the show notes. And we've got that there for you at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 615. And we also have transcripts there. And we do that for every show for, well, I don't think we did it for the first 100 episodes or so, but for a long, long time, we've done that. So you'll find that all on my website at kerryneuhoff.com. Well, we got a fresh episode coming up next time. But first, make sure you check out Subsplash. You know what? They are helping churches with digital discipleship. You can join 16,000 other churches by going to subsplash.com slash carry. That's subsplash.com slash carry. And then 10 by 10 is launched and they want to help you get some free resources to help reach the next generation. You can visit 10by10.org. That's T-E-N-X-1-0.org and get started today. Next episode, I've got Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon. And I'm very interested in the next generation. We're going to talk about what the next generation thinks is wrong with the church, why there is no next generation crisis, but a discipleship crisis, close friends and close up friends and predictions about the future church. Here's an excerpt. There's not a lot of young people that are leaving because they're lazy. They're leaving and joining social entrepreneur organization. They have tons of side hustles statistically. Like so many of them are building something, creating content online. They're they're definitely creative and passionate and there there's this energy. It's just not going into kingdom efforts. And so um what I think the future church will be is like we we are going to have a more robust form of success of what church success looks like to where it's in the world. It's um, one of the big conversations we're trying to think through in culture of way churches. Yes, discipleship. Yes, community. And third is it's coming up next time. Also, a delightful conversation with William Vanderblumen. It's always interesting. Jenny Catron, Mike Foster. Then we kick off 2024 with a church trend series. I do a post every January on my website, which is one of the best read posts of the year, if not the top post. And we're going to do that. But this time we're bringing it to the podcast too. I'm doing four weeks 
on church trends we're seeing with J.P. Pocluda, Gabriel McCullough, David Kinneman, Brady Shear, Ryan Burge, John Mark Comer. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be great. Hey, and to not miss a thing, make sure you subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please tell a friend. Share this episode, post it to social, let the guests know that you appreciate them, and let us know that you really appreciate it too. And then if you're like me, you're always looking for ways to stay informed and engage with the world around us. The problem is there's so much content out there, it's hard to cut through the noise. And that's why I offer every Friday the On The Rise newsletter. It's just a half dozen of the most curious, interesting things that I have found that particular week that I deliver to you for free in your inbox. You can join about 100,000 other leaders who get on the rise by going to ontherisenewsletter.com. Easy to subscribe, easy to unsubscribe. I send you stuff on the Christian faith, but I also send you some really curious things too. Some really like videos, podcasts I'm listening to, and uh, well, little tidbits like a museum of the internet. What was the first emoji? I don't know. It's stuff I find interesting. And if you would find stuff like that interesting, it's going to make you a better preacher, give you lots of illustrations, better communicator, uh, and a better leader. Head on over to ontherisenewsletter.com. Check it out. It's free on theRiseNewsletter.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing in your leadership.